Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1295. 1 Peter chapter 2. You, uh, you may or may not have ever heard the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a Christian speaker and author. Uh, when she was a teenager, she suffered an accident that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. And for over 50 years now, she's been confined to a wheelchair. And for over 50 years, she's been ministering to other people with disabilities. And among many other things, her ministry, Johnny and Friends, hosts summer retreats for families who have been affected by disabilities. A few years ago, I heard a story about a family that spent one week of their summer vacation at uh, one of those retreats. They were there not as participants, but they were there as volunteers. So instead of going to Disney World or to the beach that summer, not that there's anything wrong with either one of those things, they decided to spend um, their summer vacation volunteering at this camp. And uh, as they were riding home, after a long week from the back seat, their their young son asked his parents a question, and his question was this, when will I get my wheelchair? Now, his parents, of course, said, we hope you never need a wheelchair. We hope you're always healthy. And the boy said, me too, but I would be okay with a wheelchair. So they asked him, why? Why, why would you want a wheelchair? And this was his response. Because I want to be like Johnny. Now, that little boy knew better than most kids his age just how difficult life in a wheelchair could be because he just spent a week of his summer around lots of children and other people in wheelchairs and various levels of disability. But all he knew is he admired Johnny. He looked up to her, he loved her, and so he wanted to be like her. He wanted to identify with her, to share a common experience with her. And those who follow Jesus are called to do something similar, to identify with Him by sharing with Him the common experience of suffering for righteousness' sake. What I want us to see together this morning from God's Word is that this is one reason among many why Jesus died and rose again. So let's read together here in 1 Peter 2. We're going to begin in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You 
that you've spoken clearly in your word and you've told us exact, exactly what we are to expect if we want to follow Jesus. And Lord, more than that, that you not only call us to it, but you equip us for it. So Spirit of God, we thank you for your uh, help. We pray that you would help us today, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you would have to show us and say to us through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here's our big idea for us this morning. We've been asking over the past few weeks leading up to Easter, why did Jesus die and rise again? And the answer we see here in our text this morning is that Jesus died and rose again to be our substitute and our example. Jesus died and rose again to be our substitute and our example. We're going to find that those are two truths that we have to hold together that we can't separate from one another. And I take that big idea mainly from verse 21 here where Peter says, To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. I'm going to help you see that suffered for you means as your substitute in your place, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Now when Peter says, to this you have been called, he's talking about the calling to endure unjust suffering. That's what he's been talking about in verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing, he says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says in verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's what Peter's talking about. When he says in verse 21, to this you have been called. You have been called to endure suffering for the sake of righteousness. Now one thing that I want us to acknowledge is Peter's addressing Christian slaves. He says in verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then he goes on to say, this is a gracious thing when you endure and so forth. We don't have time to dive too deep down that rabbit hole, but I want to be clear that the Bible does not commend slavery. It acknowledges that slavery existed, that it was a reality in which many people lived at the time. Slavery as an institution is contrary to the teachings of Scripture, and it's not an accident that as Christianity and its uh, ethics spread throughout the Roman Empire that slavery as an institution died out. Those, those are not accidental things. When, when the Bible is rightly applied, when it's not twisted and perverted, slavery as an institution shrivels and dies because these are two worldviews that are at odds with one another. But the reason I, I point this out is I don't want us to make the mistake of saying or thinking, well, what Peter says in verses 19 through 25, he was applying that to slaves and so it doesn't apply to us. So when he says in verse 19, um, when he says, excuse me, in verse 21, to this you have been called, to this suffering unjustly, suffering for righteousness' sake, I don't want us to think, well, I'm exempt from the you. To this you have been called. I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking, well, this doesn't include us who are not slaves or servants in some way. What Peter says specifically to Christian slaves in chapter 2, he goes on to apply to all Christians in chapters 3 and 4. And the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that everyone 
who follows Jesus has this calling to take up their cross and deny themselves. So one way we could say it is that if you have been called to salvation, then you have also been called to suffering for the sake of righteousness. And I want to give you some scriptural examples of this where we hear this elsewhere. You can write these down and go and read them some other time if you want, but I'll quote them for you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-14. through 14. This is later in the same book. Peter's now speaking not specifically to slaves, but to every, every believer. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Paul describes both faith and suffering as a gift given to believers. Matthew 5, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And in Acts 5, Luke, speaking of the believers who had been arrested, who had been told to shut up, to stop talking about Jesus. Luke says of them, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So over and over and over you hear this. You hear this refrain that suffering is to be expected. It should not surprise us. It should not catch us off guard. And I want to plead with you not to be deceived about this because there are so many people, lots of them have TV shows, lots of them have shiny teeth and shiny hair and they're on the TV and they tell lies about this. And they tell, they tell people that, listen, follow Jesus because it's the easy way. And Jesus said, no, 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 the people who follow me are going to have to walk the narrow path. It's a hard path. It's not an easy path. Jesus said, anyone who comes after me has to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus over and over and over again said, listen, following me is not going to be easy. In fact, when his disciples got to talking about who's going to be the greatest, he said, listen, you guys are not ready to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You're going to have to do that if you're going to follow me. He said to them, in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So Jesus never, He was not this kind of salesman who said, no, this life's going to be easy, follow me, and then later He switched. There's no bait and switch to Christianity. He said from the very beginning, it's going to be a hard road. And over and over throughout the New Testament, the people who came after Him reminded us of this truth. And so do not be deceived by the lie that identifies God's blessing with material gain, with health, wealth, prosperity. And do not be deceived by the more subtle lie that identifies God's blessing with things like having your dreams fulfilled or some other vague concept of self-realization or something like that. We need to check that our definition of blessing matches the Bible's definition of blessing. The Bible says that you are blessed when people persecute you for the sake of righteousness, and when people revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you because you're just trying to live like Jesus. The Bible says you're blessed when people don't understand you and say that you're weird. The Bible says that you're blessed when you suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's what it means to be blessed. 
The Bible says we should see suffering as a gift that we have been counted worthy to endure for the name of Jesus. And, and maybe as important as, as all of that, the Bible says that enduring suffering is absolutely worth it. Paul says in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I pray that that would be our perspective. That I'll be willing to put up with anything as long as I have Jesus. I'll be willing to lose anything as long as I can have Jesus. What I want you to see with me this morning is that these two truths that Peter wants us to hear, that Christ is our substitute and He's our example, these two truths go hand in hand and they are the reason why we, as followers of Christ, are called to endure suffering for the sake of righteousness. So we cannot neglect or downplay one of these at the expense of the other. If we do, we're going to slide into grave error. And so I want us to look a little bit more closely at each of these truths together. So we're called to endure suffering Christ, because Christ died and rose again in order to be our substitute and to be our example. So let's look more carefully at these. Peter says briefly in verse 21, Christ suffered for you. Notice the because... He says in verse 21, To this you have been called to, to suffer for the sake of righteousness. You've been called to this because Christ suffered for you. And in the verses that follow, he unpacks what he means by that. He says, for example, in verse 22, that Jesus committed no sin. Then he says in verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. So when you put verse 22 and verse 24 together, what you get is that the sins for which Jesus died were not His own because He committed no sin. He, instead, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That's why I say He's our substitute because there's an exchange that takes place. He had no sin. Instead, He bore our sins in His body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, Peter is thinking here of Isaiah 53, and I know he's thinking that, not because I have some super-duper insight, but because he quotes from Isaiah 53. And what you find in Isaiah 53 is a description of the servant of God who suffers unjustly, who does not open his mouth when oppressed and afflicted. And Isaiah also describes this exchange. He says... He, the servant who is the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, He was pierced for our transgressions. He didn't have any transgressions for which to be pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He didn't have any iniquities for which to be crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the, the chastisement that brought us peace. So He gets the chastisement, we get the peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. He gets wounds, we get healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you remove this element from the work of Christ, if you ignore or downplay his role as our substitute, what you're left with is a really good man who did a lot to inspire us with his good example. Or if you're maybe more pessimistic, who makes us feel bad that we can't live up to his good example and nothing else. If you take away the role of Jesus as our substitute, we don't have a Savior. We have someone who might inspire us with his example, but ultimately it's somebody to whom we're never going to live up. If Jesus is only our example and not also our substitute, then we are absolutely hopeless. Because as we saw last week in Romans 5, our, our problem is not that we need a better example. Our problem is that apart from God's grace, we are unwilling to submit to God and we're unable to submit to God. And that's why God sent Jesus to reconcile us to Himself by His death. It's interesting that Peter describes the cross in verse 24 as the tree. Notice that. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why doesn't he say... On the cross. Why, do, why does he say he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the cross, but by referring to it as the tree, he's invoking a word that reminds us that the cross was not just a shameful way to die in the eyes of men. We could go on and on and on about how shameful a death that would have been to be stripped down naked and hung up on a cross, exposed. It, it took a long time to die that way. We could describe all the physical parts of crucifixion that made it shameful and painful and all those kind of things. But over and over in the New Testament, the New Testament writers don't draw attention to that. They draw attention to the fact that the cross was... To die on the cross meant that you died under the curse of God. Because in the Old Testament, God said that everyone who dies by being hanged on a tree is under a curse. Paul picks up on that idea in Galatians 3 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus was hanged on a tree. He died on the cross. So what that means is that He became a curse for us in order to redeem us from the curse. That's the same idea Peter's getting at when he says of Jesus, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He's not just pointing to the pain, the physical pain of the cross, or the shame or the humiliation of the cross. He's pointing to the fact that Christ became a curse in our place. He who was sinless bore our sins. He satisfied the wrath we deserve. He died the death we had earned with our sin. He is our substitute. So there's danger in seeing Jesus only as our example and not also as our substitute. But there's also danger in failing to see that He was also our example in, being addition, in addition to being our substitute. So He is first our substitute, and He is also second our example. 
Peter says in verse 21 that Christians have been called to endure unjust suffering because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And by the way, all those Scripture references I gave you on the uh, previous slide go with this. They show that Christ is our example. We're called to walk in His ways. The word that Peter uses in uh, verse 21 when he says, example, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. That word means something along the lines of to trace over. It, it, I mean, in Greek, it's literally to write over. So the idea, picture in your mind a teacher with a classroom full of students, and she's teaching the students how to write their letters. Uh, Nixon's done this in preschool. They have this worksheet, and let's just say they're, they're learning to write the letter A. So on the worksheet, there's a big capital A, and it's got those little dashed lines, right? And what that worksheet does is it, it helps the students know how to, they, they just trace the line. And as they trace the line, they develop the movements of how to write the letter A and the letter B and so on and so forth. That's the idea here when Peter says that Christ left us an example. He gave us a worksheet and said, Here, here's the path, here's how you live the Christian life. You go this way, and then you go that way, and then you go across. That's what Jesus did for us. His suffering in our place as our substitute was also His leaving a pattern for us to follow after. Now the key thing to keep in mind here is that our suffering does not save us. Jesus' suffering in our place is what saves us. But the righteous suffering of those who follow Jesus demonstrates that we have been saved, that He's not only our Savior, but also our Lord. So suffering for the sake of righteousness is not a way that we earn salvation, but it is a way that we identify with Christ, that we demonstrate that we have been saved and that we grow in conformity to His likeness. Like that little boy who said, when am I going to get my wheelchair because I want to be like Johnny? We should expect to endure hardships and trials of various kinds as believers because we are growing in conformity with Jesus. Now, what this all means is that when we say that Christ is our substitute, that does not mean that He suffered so we would never have to suffer. That's not what we mean by the substitute part of it. We don't mean that Christ died and He takes all the suffering so that we will never have to suffer. What it means is that He died for our sins so that we won't have to die for our sins. He died for our sins so that we can die to our sins. That's what Peter says here. He suffered for you. He bore our sins in His body on the tree that, so that we might die to sin. Not for sin, but to sin. And so that we might live to righteousness. So when we endure hardship, we're not suffering for sins. We're suffering for the sake of righteousness. That's what Peter, that's why he tells us 
not just that Jesus suffered, but He also tells us how. In verse 23, for example, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Peter intends for us to take that and to apply it in our lives to some way when, when you experience some hardship that you don't lash out at other people, that you don't go around puffing up your chest, threatening other people, asserting your rights, but that you exercise humility and that you entrust everything to the one who judges justly. And so I want us to turn now to the question of how, how we do this. We've heard Peter tell us that all Christians are called to endure unjust suffering. He gives us two reasons why we should endure unjust suffering, because Christ suffered for us, because Christ left an example for us. And now we come to the question of how. Peter gives us some hints as to how we can endure unjust suffering in a way that honors God. And I tell you what, I, I, I don't mean to exaggerate in any way, but this is so crucial. If you learn this, uh, it will change your life. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Look back at verse 19. Peter says, For this is a gracious thing when, and notice three words there, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. How do we suffer in a way that honors God? By being mindful of God. That's the short answer. You look beyond the circumstances of your hardship and you think about God. And this is the problem for most of us is that when we have some kind of trial, whether it's a big thing or a little thing, whether it's cancer or the person in front of us was texting and I missed the, the yellow light. We, we forget the most important person, capital P in the equation, God. And we just think about me and whoever it is that I can see and whatever it is that I can see, and we're not mindful of God. We don't factor Him into the equation. But if we do this, if we are mindful of God and we endure sorrow while suffering unjustly, Peter says this is a gracious thing. Now, again, that's, you kind of get more and more practical as you go. Because you say, okay, well, okay, how do I endure suffering? How do I do that? Mindful of God. All right, great. How do I do that? Right? Are there some truths about God about which I need to think? Yes. And Peter points us to some of those here. So, I want to show you three Things that we could add more, I'm sure, but just kind of three broad categories about God that we need to be mindful about. First is that God sees perfectly. Be mindful of the fact that God sees perfectly. Notice again the question that Peter asks at the end of verse 20. He says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter's reminding us that all of our lives, the joys and the hardships are lived 
in the sight of God, before the face of God. There is nothing that escapes his gaze, nothing that slips past his watchful eye. He sees. I love the story uh, of Jesus. It's told in several accounts of the gospel. Jesus telling the disciples to get in a boat, to go to the other side of the Sea of, the sea of Galilee. He'll meet them on the other side. He's going to go up on the mountain to pray. So he sends them out. They get in the boat. They start rowing. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And as they're rowing, this violent storm comes down out of nowhere. Now, these, some of these men are professional fishermen. <laughs> they have spent their lives out on you know, the water, and they are panicking. If that tells you anything about the severity of the storm, they are rowing. They're getting exhausted. John says in his account of the gospel that they were three or four miles out when, when the storm hit. So they're three or four miles away from the shore. Jesus is up on the mountain. But I want you to listen to what Mark says. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. That's a phrase that's real easy to just skim over. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. But when you think about it, they're three or four miles away from shore. He's up on the mountain, so I don't know, you know, as the crow flies, how far they are away from each other, but it's a pretty good distance. It's the middle of the night. There's a, a terrible storm in between him and them, and yet he saw. Just as simple as that, he saw them. And maybe you need to hear that truth today, that God sees you. If you're going through some kind of trial, that you're not alone, that there is someone who has you in his sight, and the one who sees you loves you, and you need to discipline yourself to be mindful of this truth that God sees perfectly. The second truth is that God plans wisely. We need to be mindful of the fact that God sees perfectly and also that God plans wisely. Where do I see that here? I see it. In verse 21, where Peter says, To this you have been called. You have been called to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. What that means is that hardship is not an accident. Jesus' disciples, for example, were not caught in that storm, that storm because they disobeyed Him. And Jesus did not send them out there unaware of what was going to happen to them. He sent them, He commanded them to get in the boat and go, knowing full well what was going to happen to them. They were called to go out into that storm. They were not out there because of sin. They were not out there because of stupidity. They were out there right in the center of God's will, as we might put it. And that was a place of grave danger. And yet it was at the exact same time a place of incredible security because they were obeying Jesus and because Jesus saw them and He had planned everything very wisely. And the same is true for us. God wisely plans hardship 
because He is more concerned with us growing in holiness and growing in likeness to His Son than He is in us living the easiest, most trouble-free life possible. If they had not obeyed Him and gone out into the middle of that storm, and if He had not wisely sent them out there in the middle of the storm, they would never have been able to see Him as He came walking on the storm and when He told the storm to shut up and be still. They would have missed a display of His glory if it were not for the fact that they had to go out three or four miles and row through the middle of the night and be absolutely exhausted. Now, Peter makes an important distinction all throughout this letter between suffering that results from our doing good and suffering that results from sin. He says you don't get any credit for suffering for sin. Sometimes hardship is the result of sin. That's not always the case. But God calls every believer to suffer for the sake of righteousness. And when we find ourselves in the midst of one of those trials, we have to discipline ourselves to be mindful of this truth that nothing that is happening to me is happening outside the wise plan of God. The third truth is that God judges justly. In verse 23, Peter says of Jesus, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now the word himself in verse 23 is not there in the Greek. It's added by translators to help the sentence flow a bit better in English because otherwise it reads, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting to him who judges justly. And that's kind of an odd sentence that we wouldn't typically say in English. But the reason I point that out is, of course, Jesus did entrust Himself to God, but He also entrusted all other things to Him who judges justly. When He suffered, He entrusted, um, for example, the people who were crucifying Him. He was entrusting them to God who judges justly, either to do what God did with the Roman centurion who saw Him and said, Surely this man is the Son of God, or to judge them, to uh, judge them in wrath, in hell. So Jesus was entrusting all things to the one who judges justly. When He endured injustice, He entrusted all things to the God of all justice. And you and I can, can and should do the same thing. So in order for us to be mindful of God, we have to look beyond our circumstances. Just yesterday, uh, you know, sometimes you, you read a verse of Scripture that you've probably read many times, but it just doesn't hit you a certain way until you've seen something else in Scripture. And I was reading in <clears throat> Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews says this about Moses. He says, "...by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured, as seeing him who is invisible." Moses was not afraid of the anger of Pharaoh because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw someone who is invisible and that helped him to endure and not to be afraid. And is that not the same truth that Peter is saying to us here? That if you want to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly, if you want to follow Jesus in a way that will honor God, you have to do it being mindful of God. You have to see someone whom you can't see. 
which means that you can't use these two eyeballs in your head. You have to use the eyes of faith. And so if we want to do this, we have to plead with God to give us these eyes to see His care for us, His wisdom over us, and His justice toward us and toward all things and all people. We have to actively remind ourselves that God has not forgotten us or forsaken us, that He wisely ordains hardship as a refining fire to make us more like Jesus, that He judges justly, that He always does what is right, and that He's worthy of our trust. He is, as Peter says in verse 25, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He's our shepherd. He's one who cares tenderly for us and who leads us beside still waters and makes us to lie down in green pastures and He is our overseer. He is one who has authority over us and over all things and He has all power to do all that pleases Him. So He is wise, He is powerful, and He loves you. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And maybe you need to be reminded of that truth today, as I sometimes do, that there is one who has all power and authority, and the one who has all power and all authority has all wisdom and never makes a mistake. And the one who has all power and all authority and who never makes a mistake loves you. And he exercises his power and authority and wisdom for your good. I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you, pray with you this morning. The altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, Lord, in which you have spoken very clearly about what we are to expect if we want to follow after you. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you would help us not no longer to be deceived um, by any lies that we sometimes hear. Um, God, that we would not be deceived into thinking that following you would be an easy path, but, Lord, that we would be convinced and assured that it is absolutely worth it, and that we would say with Paul that I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. God, help us to have that estimation of everything, that we would esteem you highly. And Lord, that we would be willing to follow after you because you suffered for us and gave your life for us because you loved us. God, help us to be mindful of you. Help us to see you who are invisible and that we would see you with eyes of faith and think of you and God, that that would lead us to honor you in the way we live. Lord, now as we respond, I pray that you would help us respond rightly <clears throat> in faith and in repentance. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.